You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. If you were with us last week, you may remember that we talked about these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this world. And we said that if you choose the kingdom of Christ, you might find yourself in direct conflict with the kingdoms of this world. There's simply no way around that. The kingdom of God is opposed. It's utterly opposed to the kingdoms of this world. And so we compared the kingdom of Rome specifically with the kingdom of Christ. And we did it in in this way. We said that Rome was a kingdom that was established by war, that was held together by threats of violence and was used to bring power and prestige to some people through the oppression of others, which is not all that different from all of the rest of the kingdoms of this world. And we set that in contrast with the kingdom of Christ, which was established in humility. And its purpose was peace, to bring about the flourishing and the good of all people. And those two kingdoms are utterly opposed to one another. A few few weeks ago, we saw this elsewhere in, in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 19, we read the story of of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to have eternal life? And, And Jesus, of course, tells him, well, just sell everything that you have and give it all away and come and follow me. And we're told that the rich young ruler went away sad because he had great possessions and he was unwilling, unwilling to give them up for the sake of following Christ, for the hope of eternal life. He was unwilling. And I reminded us in the midst of that sermon that in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he were to gain the entire world, but he were to lose his soul, which is particularly interesting when you consider that just previously in Matthew, in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is tempted, he's literally tempted with the kingdoms of this world to inherit the entire world. Satan says, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus, of course, responds by saying, be gone, be gone from me, Satan, because worship is only due to the Lord, our God. I remind you of these things throughout the course of the book of Matthew from the previous chapters, because I want to make sure that we understand how clearly the book of Matthew is presenting these two kingdoms for us to consider. And it's saying we have a profound choice to make as to which one we will follow. In a a different way, the kingdom motif continues in Matthew as we come to our text today in chapter 25. We're gonna be told about a great judgment that is coming where Christ, our King, will show up and he will welcome some into his kingdom and he will send others into eternal fire. That's what our passage today is going to say. But before we look at that text in Matthew 25, I want to show you something quickly about the chapters in in between. So last week we were in chapter 21. This week we're in chapter 25. So what happens in the middle? 
Well, everything in chapter 21 through where we are today and even on in the book of Matthew in the ending chapters are about that last week of Jesus's life leading up to his crucifixion. And so last Sunday, we considered the triumphant entry, the the Palm Sunday party that they had leading up. That's the Sunday before his crucifixion that Friday. And so what we see happening is there's this rising tension that is going on in Jerusalem where Jesus has been pit against the leaders, the religious leaders of the day. He's just paraded into Jerusalem. He's received the praise of the people as if he were the Messiah, they cried out to him. And then he goes into the temple And he throws over the tables. And at the same time, what he's doing is he's overthrowing the system, the system that was keeping money in the pockets of these religious leaders. And so there's tension growing between the the Pharisees and Sadducees, the scribes and the priest and Jesus. And so what we begin to see happening even in chapter 21 is that Jesus's authority is beginning to be challenged by these religious leaders. And now, instead of perhaps in the passive ways that Jesus has responded in the past, he begins to speak parables very directly against the scribes and the Pharisees, against the religious leaders of the day. He begins to speak directly against them. In those parables, he makes it clear that they will not be inheriting the kingdom of God because they have rejected him. And so the tension grows. It grows all the way to the point where at the very end of chapter 21, we're told that they are seeking a way to arrest him. But they don't. They don't arrest him because they fear the crowds because the crowds love Jesus. And so what they decide to do is that they have to discredit Jesus in front of the crowd so that they can arrest him, so that they can kill him. And so that's what they begin to do in chapter 22. They begin to literally, the text says, plot ways that they could entangle him in his words. And so in chapter 22, verse 16, we're told that a Herodian, that's a person who is all about the kingdom of Herod, comes up to him and tries to trap him and it doesn't work. And so then in verse 23, the Sadducees take their chance and then the Pharisees take their chance in verse 34. But Jesus just continually shows them as he says in verse 29, that they neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And he evades all of the traps that they have set for him. And then in verse, in chapter 23, he just unleashes on them a list, a list of complaints, a list of woes against the scribes and the Pharisees for the way that they have led the people of God away from God with their legalism and their hypocrisy and their continual rejection of the prophets. And he says, instead of this overbearing legalism that was preached by the Pharisees, Jesus begins to present to them a law that is much simpler, though much more difficult to follow. When he's asked in chapter 22 what the greatest commandment is, I think think that's actually an important exchange for us to read as we prepare for chapter 25. So let me read this for us. It's chapter 22, starting in verse 34. He's going to be asked what the greatest commandment is. Here's what it says. And one of them, that's a Pharisee. So here's a Pharisee trying to trap Jesus. It says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, 
which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let me just, let me just draw your attention to a couple of things here in that passage, if I may. Jesus says that the entire law is summed up. The entire law is dependent on simply these two things. That you would love God with every aspect of your being and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. If you would just do those two things, then you would be all good in the kingdom of God. If you would just follow those two commands, then you will follow the whole law of God, he says. And, and and pay attention to those commands. Notice that the commands are not a list of things that you cannot do, but simply two things. Two things that you ought to do. And as you notice that, think about the way that you have heard, perhaps the way that you have communicated the law of God to other people. Because I know that the way that I have heard the law of God explained to me over and over and over again in my life is a list of things that I cannot do. Things that I should not do. Things that I will not do. And Jesus says, it's all summed up in this. Two things that you must do. The other thing I want you to see is in verse 39. He begins with this. He says, and a second is like it. It's like it. He says, there's a connection. There's a connection here between loving God and loving your neighbor. They are like one another. And, and we're gonna see that even more in our passage today as we walk through chapter 25, just how truly connected those two commands are to one another. But so for now, just, just sort of tuck that away in the back of your mind that those two commands are connected to one another. And I'm gonna turn our attention to what happens after these disputes that he has with the religious leaders. Okay, so chapter 24. So he's just had all these disputes in chapters 22 and 23. And now chapter 24, Jesus sits down with his disciples and he gives them in the book of Matthew, his last great teaching to them. He's on the Mount of Olives. Before he goes to the cross, he sits down with them and he has this conversation. And, and it would make sense in, in the book of Matthew, given the context of this book, that this is what they'd be talking about. They're talking about the kingdom of God and specifically this question, when is the kingdom of God going to come? When is it going to happen? And Jesus gives them an answer, which is frankly, at least to me, completely unsatisfactory because his answer is this, I don't know. He says, nobody knows. Nobody knows. So you better be ready. Nobody knows, so you better be ready. He says it in verse 44, therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And then he gives these two parables, the parable of the 10 virgins and the parable of the talents. In the parable of the 10 virgins, he says that someone's waiting to get married, but the groom showed up for the wedding at midnight. Talk about a time when you would not be ready. He's coming when you're not ready. 
He shows up at midnight and he says this, as he sort of sums that up, he says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And then he turns and he tells another parable. He just says, you don't know the day or the hour. And he says, let me give you another parable. And he tells them the parable of the talents where he makes it clear that whenever that day is, whenever that hour comes, here's what's gonna happen. We will be held accountable for what we are found doing for the kingdom of God. And so he says, always be ready for the kingdom and be doing the work of the kingdom. And so that leaves us then with this one really good question. What does it mean to be doing the work of the kingdom of God? If Jesus is coming back at any moment, I don't know when, and when he gets here, he's gonna hold me accountable for whether or not I am working for the kingdom of God. It seems important that I would know what does it even mean? to do the work of the kingdom. And that's where our text this morning comes in. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, Jesus says, I'll tell you what it looks like. Let me tell you what that judgment, that final judgment is going to look like. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 25, and I'll read this text for us. Um, we'll have it, we have it up here on the screen. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, it's on page 485. That's where you can find it. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of those with you as our gift to you. Well, let me read Matthew 25, starting in verse 31 for us. It says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus says, always be ready because you don't know. You don't know the hour that the son of man is coming, but he is certainly coming. 
And, and when he comes, we will all be held to an account for the ways that we have used the gifts of God for the kingdom of God. We will all be held to account for the way that we have lived as citizens of God's kingdoms and not the kingdoms of this world. And so the question is that we're left to wonder is what does it look like to live as citizens of the kingdom of God? And then he gives us this spectacular, glorious teaching in Matthew 25, where he says, I'll tell you what that judgment is going to look like. And he begins by saying, here's what's gonna happen. Verse 32, he says, all the nations will be gathered there, all of them. That is to say, we will all stand before the judgment of God. There's no getting out of it. There's no getting around it. We will all stand before God. As Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 says, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. And here's that judgment laid out before us in Matthew 25. And this is where people, maybe you, start getting a little uncomfortable. Right? We start getting a little uncomfortable. What's, what's going on here with Jesus? Right? Because at first glance, when I, when I first read this, it seems that what Jesus is saying is that the way to get into heaven, the way to get into the kingdom of God is through my kind deeds, through my love that I show to those who are in poverty, that I show to those who are in need. And that interpretation begins to, to chafe against us, partly for good reasons and partly for bad reasons. The, the bad reason is that we look at our lives and we realize that we haven't been all that loving and so that doesn't sit well with us. But the good reason is because we understand that that's never been the way that I've understood salvation. When I read the rest of scripture, it seems to say something different. Everything else that I've understood from scripture has said that my salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. So what is Jesus doing here? When he makes our, our entrance into the kingdom of God dependent on our works. So let me just pause here at the beginning of this passage and make sure that we understand a couple of things about our salvation. We're right to feel uncomfortable with that interpretation of the words of Jesus, not because the words of Jesus are untrue, but because our interpretation is bad. And so when we come to passages of scripture that are unclear, here's our task. Our task is to run them through the grid of the rest of scripture. And so when we take this passage and we run it through the grid of the rest of scripture, this is what we see. All of the rest of scripture seems to be saying this over and over again, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, right? We see it all the way back in the very beginning. So Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, right? They sin against God. God shows up, God confronts them with their sin. And what do they do? They lie about it. They hide they try to blame one another. They try to cover the whole thing up. They certainly did not do anything that would merit the grace of God. And yet, God forgives them. He forgives them. He sets them back into right relationship with him. And so that we see in the very next chapter, the first verse of Genesis chapter four, they receive a blessing from God. That's what we're told in Genesis 4.1. Fast forward in Genesis and we get to Abram. 
And we see Abram just being picked up, just basically just being picked up by God out of his idol-worshiping family and by God's grace being saved. We're told that, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, even though if you read the story of Abraham's life, there's a whole bunch of unrighteousness. But he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then we think about the story of the children of Israel in slavery, in need of salvation, and God doesn't wait for them to get their act together in order to save them. In fact, when he sends Moses to save them, they're all kind of like, I don't know if we want this or not. Things are going to get hard if we get saved. I don't think, I think maybe we'll just stay right here, keep things the way they were. But what does God do? He saves them out of slavery. He brings them into freedom and then he gives them the law. That famous law, in fact, that we know, the Ten Commandments. But I might remind us that the Ten Commandments does not begin with God telling them what they should not do. The Ten Commandments begins with this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, the Ten Commandments begin by him saying, listen, I already saved you. I've already done it. Now live like it's true. And we see it all through the Old Testament. We see it on into the New Testament over and over again. The drumbeat of scripture is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Perhaps most clearly stated in that spectacular verse in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. And so so what's Jesus doing here? What's he doing in Matthew 25? I think one way to explain it is he's doing exactly what the next verse in Ephesians says. Ephesians 2.10. It says, now you, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that in Matthew 25, forget the way you used to read it. And notice this in Matthew 25. He does not separate them from one another based on whether they love those in need or not. He separates them based on whether they are a sheep or a goat. And then he looks at all the sheep and he says, you loved, you loved those who were in need. And he looks at all the goats and he says, and you did not. How does he know that all of the sheep loved those who were in need? Because that's what sheep do. Followers of Jesus are marked by their love, especially their love for those who are less fortunate. It's just what we do. It's just what it means to be a Christian. And so if you look at your life and you realize that it is not marked by care and compassion for those in need, the right response is not, well, praise God, I'm saved by grace and not works the right response is for you to consider whether you're a sheep or a goat. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then I would encourage you to stop reading scripture. 
Because if you keep reading scripture, you might find that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And you might run across that amazing verse in John 13, 35, where Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And if you read long enough, you might get all the way to 1 John chapter 3, where you'll see this question where we're asked, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And then just a chapter later, you will see that the answer is in essence, it doesn't. Because in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we're told that anyone who does not, who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then you just go a little bit further in that passage. And in verse 20, you'll see this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And I could go on and on, but for the sake of time, let me just bring us back to our text here and make sure that we understand this that the righteous inherit the kingdom of God, not because of their works, but because of their faith, but their faith results in an utterly changed life, literally changing them from a goat into a sheep. Their righteousness then comes. It comes out of a life that has been utterly transformed by the grace of God. Because when we encounter the love and the mercy of God, when we respond to it in faith, we are completely and totally changed. The way it's spoken of in the prophet Ezekiel, God says this to us. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The grace of God removes our dead heart of stone and it replaces it with life, with a heart of flesh. In Christ, we are given the spirit of God and the heart of God and the heart of God is all about loving those in need. That's why he loved us. That's why he loved us even enough that he would save us. And that too is all through scripture. And I could show you all of those places, but I will spare us. I'll say this. Here's what God says over and over and over again in scripture. He tells us to care for the widows and the orphans and the immigrants and the poor and the houseless and the hungry. Pastor Pastor Brian Loritz, he, he tells a story about reading through scripture. And he said, as I read through scripture, here's what I decided to do. Every time I saw a verse in scripture that told me that I was supposed to love those in need, I just put a little SJ in the margin for social justice right next to the verse, a little SJ. And he said, I just read through scripture. And then afterwards I went back and I counted over 2000 SJs because the Bible, which shows us the very heart of God makes it plain that his heart is for those who are in need. And so what does it mean to do the work of the kingdom of God? It means to follow our king and love 
that we would love people. The root of our salvation is God's love for us, but the fruit of our salvation is our love for others. The root of our salvation is God's love for us, but the fruit of our salvation is our love for others. Okay, but look at what else, look at what else he does here in, in this verse. He connects our love of others with our love of him. And he takes those two greatest commandments, just like we said, he takes, takes those two greatest commandments and he brings them together. Love God with every aspect of your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this, that if you love me, you will love your neighbor. And when you love your neighbor, you are actually loving me. It's the same thing that he does in chapter 22. The second is like it. It's like it in this way. The command to love your neighbor is, is the overflow of your love for God. If you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar. But notice this again as well. Those commands, the most important commands of God are not some legalistic code that tells me things that I cannot do. Rather, it is the open-ended freedom in Christ to love in all sorts of ways. And that's what, that's what Galatians 5 tells us. Galatians 5 says that you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the wicked here in Matthew 25 are condemned, not because of what they did, but because of what they did not do. And so don't spend so much time worrying about the sins that you're committing, that you're trying to stop, that you don't have time to love other people. In fact, if you would focus your time and your energy on pouring out your life for others, you would probably find that you won't have near as much time to do all those other things that are keeping you from following Jesus. Because right? it's hard to find time to be a glutton when you're feeding the hungry. It's hard to find time for drunkenness when you're out giving water to the thirsty. If you, if you just spend your time being hospitable to strangers, you'll have less time to be judgmental of those who are different than you. Clothing the naked will certainly get in, in the way of the time that you spend watching pornography. Visiting the sick and the imprisoned will make it a whole lot harder for you to sit around in the midst of your own pride and jealousy, feeling sorry for yourself. And so, so no wonder what Galatians 5 does here is pits fleshly opportunities against serving one another. You have been given the heart of God. And his heart is a heart of love. But maybe, maybe we need to get it even more practical. So we'll do that scripture actually offers a really practical example for us. You may remember, as I said, all through the Old Testament, we're told to care for people like the widows 
and the orphans and the poor and the immigrants all through. And here's one of the particular ways that God has made provision for these people. It's through the practice of gleaning. It's actually commanded of them in Leviticus chapter 19. So let me read you Leviticus 19, nine to 10. It says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. The command of God is that the landowners, the wealthy, those who have would care for the poor in part by leaving the gleanings for them to gather. They were commanded, right, not just, not just to leave behind whatever they dropped, but actually to not harvest their whole crop. They were told to leave a margin. Leave margin in your fields for those who are in need. Now, now I'm not sure how many of us have fields. So let me make that a little bit more practical for us. Let me encourage you that when you think about your budget, when you think about the money that you have, that you leave margin in your budget for caring for the poor. I don't mean, I don't mean your tithe that you give to the church. I mean, don't budget yourself up to the edge. Leave margin so you can be generous with what God has given you. And in fact, if you're, if you're a member here, I might remind you that you have covenanted to do just that. Because here's what our covenant says. It says, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church. Okay, that's tithe. That's the money you give in, in your tithe. But then it says this, and to the relief of the poor and the spread of the gospel around the world. But how will you do that? How will you do that if you've already earmarked everything in your budget for yourself? And friend, leave, leave margin in your calendar as well. Don't, don't schedule yourself in such a way that you can never love others. Schedule in, schedule in time to be doing the work of ministry, but also leave margin so that you can actually respond when someone is in need. We have an issue in our culture right now. We budget to max out our finances. And the first thought we have when we get a raise is how can I spend more on me? Not how can I give more away? John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was known for when he was very young, he was making 30 pounds a year, that he realized that he could live on 28 pounds a year. And so he said, that's what I'm gonna do. And those two pounds he gave away. And the next year he made 60 pounds and he lived on 28. And the next year he made 90 pounds and he lived on 28, eventually he made 1,400 pounds in one year, but he lived on 28. And he gave the rest away. But that's not the way we think anymore. When I get more money, the thought is, great, what new thing can I buy? 
not how can I give even more for the sake of the gospel, for the care of the poor? We schedule our time so full that we only do the things that we want to do. Our schedule has to be full, right? Because we need to make all of that money to fund all the things that we need. And it leaves us with no margin to give or to serve those in need. This is not how things ought to be. What does it mean to work for the kingdom of God? It means to love. You've been given the heart of God and his heart is a heart of love. So, so be ready. That's what Jesus says, right? Be ready. No one knows the hour, but when that hour comes, you can be sure of this. We will all be held to an account for the way that we have worked for the kingdom of God. Jesus says in John 10, 27 to 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In that verse, we, we find this confidence, confidence in our salvation and the assurance of our salvation. If we have trusted in Christ, we are the sheep of his pasture. We've been given eternal life and no one, nothing can ever take that away from us. But also see this, that if we are the sheep of his pasture, we follow him. We follow him even in the path of suffering, and sacrifice, we follow. We follow him in loving the least of these. And one day we will follow him into the kingdom prepared for us before the foundation of this world. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you love the least of these because that means you loved us. We're so grateful that you showed us love, that while we were still sinning, you died for us. You came for the least. You came for us. So Lord, thank you. Thank you that for all of us who have trusted in you, you have made us new, given us new life, Lord, we pray that we would live out of your heart, that we would live for your kingdom, that we would look around and see those in need, that we could pour out our lives for them as you have poured out yours for us. Jesus, you tell us that we will always have the poor with us. And so, Lord, may we be found always caring for those who are poor. In Christ's name, amen.